Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Some of the world's most innovative beauty and fashion companies reach mobile users through Attentive, the personalized text messaging solution trusted by over 1,000 brands. Get powerful results from text messaging and over 25 times ROI with Attentive. Request a demo today at attentivemobile.com. Ultimately, we need to shift the dynamic from racism being a HR issue to it being a business issue. What is the engagement with the industry and, you know, how has it improved for the better or for the worse? My fear is that if we're only talking, is the passion going to die down in another year? And I think that's all of our fear. It's essential for us to not only educate, but work alongside people who are really willing and ready to make those changes. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. The anti-racism protests that erupted across the United States and then spread around the world in the wake of the murder of George Floyd have brought uncomfortable conversations around racism right into the very heart of the fashion industry. In our latest episode of the BOF podcast, executive editor Lauren Sherman spoke with Harlem Fashion Row chief executive Brandy Staniel Black and Fashion Council co-founder Sandrine Charles and creative consultant Henrietta Galina to get their advice on how our industry can take actionable steps to combat systemic racism. Here's Brandy Daniel, Sandrine Charles and Henrietta Galina, Inside Fashion. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's BOF Live event. I'm Lauren Sherman, BOF's executive editor 
and I'm joined today by Brandis Daniel, Chief Executive of Harlem's Fashion Row, Sandrine Charles, founder of Sandrine Charles Consulting, Henrietta Galina, brand and creative consultant. And today we're going to be talking about a, a really important topic, always, but you know, especially in the last few months, how to tackle systemic racism in fashion. It's a really big question. I'm sure we'll only, you know, get to to one or two points here, but but we want to do as much as we can in, in this hour that we have. What I wanted to do first is for each of you to introduce yourselves and, and what you do, and, and you're all activists as well, so maybe talk a bit about what you've been working on in the last couple months as the civil rights movement has really come to the forefront in the U.S. Henrietta, maybe we can start with you. Um, hi everyone, I'm Henrietta Bellina. Um, I am a creative director by way of brand marketing. Um, so I've been in the fashion industry for uh, almost about 15 years now, uh, working with a range of uh, fashion brands um, across different sort of categories. And um, sort of my work has always been rooted in inclusivity, um, inclusion and diversity um, by way of telling sort of brand marketing stories. Um, and image making and I would say most recently I'm one of the um, sort of co-founders of the Kelly Initiative which um, put together a four-point action-orientated proposal um, for the CFDA. Great, thank you. Brandis, what about you? Hi, I'm the uh, CEO and founder of Harlem's Fashion Row and Icon360. Harlem's Fashion Row has been doing this work for 13 years. We um, started really kind of focusing on designers of color and creating opportunities for them, connecting them with brands, um, press, and, and, and with consumers as well. Uh, we've also done several brand collaborations, which have been a great way to really bring more diversity to brands who, who may not have had it before. Um, when... COVID hit, uh, the pandemic hit, we started a nonprofit, Icon360, which is basically a fund for designers of color. And um, we've been able to raise, thanks to the CFDA and Vogue, over a million dollars um, in donations for designers of color. Thank you. And Sandrine, last but not least. I'm Sandrine Charles. Um, I have been working in the industry for 13 years now. I own Sandrine Charles Consulting, which is a boutique comms and um, everything encompassing that agency uh, for fashion and lifestyle brands. In addition, I'm the co-founder alongside Lindsay Peoples for the Black and Fashion Council. Thank you all for, for sharing that. So I think to start, this is a really big question, but obviously this the civil rights movement that's happening right now has been very prominent in the news in the last month. It's obviously never not existed, but it's suddenly, you know, the 15% pledge, protests every single day, brands are really saying, I want to make a difference. They're publicly saying, I'm going to do all these things to be di more diverse, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a lot of their ex-employees or, or um, you know, consumers are, are calling them out for not kind of practicing what, what they are, are preaching. And I'm curious to know from you all, you're all veterans in this industry. You've, you've witnessed this, this systemic racism that is particular to fashion. What, what do you think 
the biggest issue is in fashion and that we can start working on or you know people are already working on but what is the like biggest point that we need to tackle in order to start fixing all the little problems that have come out of this i don't know if one of you wants to start brandis i'm happy to start i think um what sandrine and Lindsay is doing is asking with the black and fashion council asking brands to actually put a quantitative solution in place um it's the same thing that aurora james has with the 15 percent pledge i think that brands have to fully commit and the way that they can fully commit is saying you know here is exactly what we're going to do so when you say i want my sales to get better you don't say, go out to your team and say, you know what, we want better sales next year. What you do is you say, we want a 10% increase. We want a 15% increase, you know, right? So you create very clear goals so that you know if you're successful in meeting those goals or if you're not successful in meeting those goals. And if you're not successful, there are things you put in place to make sure that you overcome that and meet that goal. It's the same thing with this, right? So I think um, the first thing that brands can do is say, what is our commitment? What is our, our firm commitment? Let's start with a very clear commitment and then work our way back. Because my, my fear is that if we just start having conversations, and I think conversation is a really key piece to this, and having with Black people and non-Black people really need to have honest dialogue. But my fear is that if we're only talking is the passion gonna die down in another year? And I think that's all of our fear, right? But if you put a very clear plan in place and you say, this is what, these are the numbers we're gonna hit across our organization, that means in our leadership and on our boards, because let's talk about boards and how there are barely any black people on boards. There's only one black CEO in the entire fashion industry. So let's just say, what are we gonna do across the board in our organization? And then you work backwards from there and doing what you have to do to, to meet that goal. Yeah, I 100% agree. And to piggyback off of that point, I think when we talk about what are the solutions or the problem, um, I always come back to equity. Um, and that's ultimately, I think, what we're striving for. And I think what makes this time feel really different um, and really special in many ways is that we're no longer asking leadership to support us with, you know, uh, a lot of the sort of uh, traditional tactics of like supporting through mentoring or internships. I think what we're really doing now is we're actually asking the power structures to like quite literally reorganize themselves to include us. And then from there, we're all collectively going to like rebuild more egalitarian structures because I think that's really the only way that things can really change when we're a part of that power structure versus the power structure um, kind of deploying certain mechanisms to erase sort of racism. I, I think it really is about equity. Sandrine, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think those were um, really great points. Uh, and it's definitely echoed a lot of things that Lindsay and myself and the executive board have been working on in terms of, you know, what are our goals out of this and having a long-term strategy with brands is really essential. Um, there's no way you can teach someone to unlearn something that was, you know, systematically in place for all of this time. So it's essential for us to not only educate, but work alongside people who are really willing and ready to make those changes um, over time. And for us, it's a three to five year period um, with benchmarks and timelines and touch points um, 
to see where they are and, and how they are evolving. Do you think that, that in terms of that restructuring, that it really does need to start at the top and that they should be looking at the board down and, and start with diversifying the board? I mean, the DNI reporting that I've done, one of the biggest things that I've come across is what tends to happen is you know, these companies will hire a DNI person who is usually a person of color and all the people of color are in HR. And so it becomes an HR thing and it doesn't actually, it isn't reflected in the senior, senior leadership. So do you believe that it needs to start with the board and the C-suite and, and you work on that first and, and you work down or are there other methods in order to, um, make sure that it isn't just pinned on a, a DNI person to, to do all this work within the organization? Um, I mean, I think the DNI role is really valuable, but I don't think it all sits in that in that realm by any means. And I think that it is it's a mixture of both, right? So it's we're looking for uh, there is a groundswell where there's bottom up change, but there also needs to be some top down change also. And I think we we've seen that when um, there's more diversity in the leadership, uh, the output looks different. And so ultimately, we need to shift the dynamic from racism being a HR issue to it being a business issue. And I think we've seen historically that the reason why fashion largely looks the way that it does is because of the leadership team, it's the board members, it's the venture, venture capital groups, it's, it's, it's everything that makes fashion work in terms of those power structures. So I think that um, it's incumbent on the industry to just look different in terms of that sort of power structure. And I think that that's a big part of this change. Sandra, what? Brandis, uh, please go. I was going to say it absolutely starts at the board and at the leadership level, at the C-suite level. You know, like um, when we look at fashion and leadership and who kind of built the foundation of fashion, who was picking the cotton so that we can make sure that we had fabrics to create we've all black people have been a part we've actually set the foundation for the fashion industry but we've never held power in this industry and so i really think that brands who are really committed to change will take a look at their board and say do i have any black people on my board look at their c-suite and say are there any black people in leadership positions and take a really full account of that and make a commitment to change Sandrine, are you seeing brands making this commitment and, and starting to make this change? Or, you know, I know there are some people who have been doing it for the last few years, but are you seeing in the work that you and Lindsay have been doing for the last few months, are you seeing a real shift in, in recruiting and just the way that the structure of these businesses is laid out? Um, I can say that over the past month since the announcement, um, not only it's, you know, Lindsay and I are at the forefront, but, you know, Brennis and about 35 plus other uh, industry leaders are on the board doing a lot of the work as well. We're having these conversations across every category. So what's really important to us and what was important since the beginning was not only conversing with HR or just conversing with our friends and comms or marketing because that's where, you know, we sit in. It was really essential that we target 
every single department and figure out like where is there a problem where can we kind of jump in and assist on you know just at least filtering through and creating some type of pipeline to diversity um and so we're pleasantly uh, surprised that it is across the board and that we are receiving feedback from you know a lot of senior people a lot of executives as well as production you know as, as in addition to retail and merchandising so it is a it's a wider conversation for us um so we're excited to see how it all folds out starting um in two weeks and so we um hope that more brands will get on board and and that they feel comfortable to you know first say we we do have a problem and we are willing to go through this more educational um process with you guys and because we are a collaborative collective it's like there are so many other resources here like Brandis is a part of our executive board and Harlem Fashion Row is also instrumental so her wealth of resources for us where Lindsay's in media and I'm in communications is is essential to having a lot of these conversations that aren't our day-to-day is there is there a place within the structure of companies where you see a lot of racism taking place that people might not think about straight on? Like we we think about the the management structure and the way people are promoted and things like that. But is there anything happening within these companies that you think is really being overlooked that is a huge, huge issue that that more businesses have to to focus on Henrietta, maybe you, I know you've worked at a, and consulted for a lot of different companies. Is there is there something within these businesses that people are, you know, they might be they might be able to see surface that they need to diversify their teams and they need to put in better, um, it, you know, management structures in order that everyone can can do well. But is there anything that you think? you know, is totally glossed over and just ignored by the white people running these businesses? Um, I do. I think that we, when we talk about workplace environment, I think that's a really large piece of this as well, because I think what's come out at, with the racial fallout is also simultaneously, and I think we saw it a little bit as well in the sort of like Me Too sort of movement that came before it, is this, uh, this narrative around the toxic workplace. So I think all of those things need to be addressed from leadership. And that's also why it's sort of leadership also needs to look different because I think one of the things that we think about when we talk about, okay, well, we're just gonna increase the number of black people, increase the number of people of color that we're gonna bring into the workforce. We also have to think about what are the conditions that we're creating for all of these new people that in, in spaces that weren't particularly set up for them to win or thrive. So I think that just workplace culture and like how we see each other and how we treat each other, I think is a big part of that because, um, you know, and how we empower people as well. Because I think one of my concerns is also, okay, great, we're gonna get, you know, the number of black people, um, we're gonna employ a large number of black people and it becomes a bit of an optics challenge, right, to fix. But then are these people being empowered to make change? Are these people being um, valued for the work that they bring? And I think all of those more nuanced and almost psychological issues come into it a bit more. Um, so for me, I think this is both a business challenge, but there's also like a mental and a psychological component as to like how are people really working in these spaces and what's that experience like for them? Yeah, do you, do you feel that there are enough 
you know, I think empowerment and workplace culture are two things that it's just, it's going to be the conversation for the next 10 years in, in this country, because every single person I know has an issue to do with this. And, and for black people, it's, it's, you know, just compounded. Um, do you think that there are organizations and groups that can come in and help with training? Do you think that there are, is sufficient training to help support foster and foster better working environments? And if so, or do you think that there, there needs to be more of those kinds of groups coming out and coming up? I think those groups exist. I think it's really about the willingness to go out and find them. Um, they may not seem as prevalent as, um, you know, the traditional PR agencies or, or the agencies that we tend to lean on um, as a fashion industry. But there are absolutely resources. There's uh, the 822 group. There's also the Black and Fashion Council, where, you know, I, I, I imagine a large part of their work is also to um, not just make sure that um, um, Black people and people of colour have visibility in the issue in the industry, also to make sure that they're being treated accordingly also. So I think there are a number of resources, but again, to my earlier point of equity, I think as much as we could diversify across the ranks, right? So that's uh, Black people, people of colour, the LGBT, LGBTQ plus community, um, differently abled people. I think as, when we're really looking at a full spectrum of diversity, a lot of these challenges might or I think will reconcile themselves in terms of that kind of hostile or, or toxic work style environment. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Brandis, you have been, you know, doing this work for so long. Have you found your engagement with the community? How has it changed over the last 13 years? Do you find that people are coming to you almost as a consultant to do the kind of work that Henrietta is, is looking for? What, what is the engagement with the industry and you know, how has it improved for the better or for the worse during, during the time you've been running this business? Um, interesting question. You know, when we started HFR in 2007, no one wanted to have the conversation about race. It was such a tough conversation to have because if you were black and you were talking about race, you would run the risk, right, of being put being blackballed. And if you were white, you definitely didn't want to talk about race. And for us, it's really been about bridge building. That's been kind of the entire, um, I think, foundation of Harlem's Fashion Rose. How do we build bridges? How do we have tough conversations? Um, how do we actually speak the truth um, and meet each other where we are? And so that's really been our entire journey. And um, the last probably few years is when I started to see a really big shift happening. But I will say that probably didn't happen until we partnered with Nike and put out, you know, work with LeBron to bring out a shoe. And then brands were a lot more, I think at that point, um, <laughs> brands were, were more interested at that point in working with us. But I've had, you know, lots of conversations. Most of our brand partners that I work with aren't Black. And we've had some of the most amazing and honest conversations that I've ever had with them before. Um, so our role in this is really how do we, yes, there's education. I don't, you know, we're not a consulting group. Um, but one of the things that I do as a part of what I do, because I'm supporting black designers and designers of color, part of that is just automatically education. 
And so when I'm working with a brand that's interested in, you know, brands, we realize we looked at our design room and we realized we don't have any black designers. Or we realized our last, you know, our collaborations for the last 10 years have only included one black designer. How can we work with HFR to, to really, you know, be a part of, of what you're doing? And before I have those partnerships or sign any of those deals, it's a conversation about like, what are you looking to do for the long term? Why are you doing this in the first place? Um, and so it's, it's some tough conversations that have to happen, but I think they're necessary um, because a lot of it is just the brand's understanding what the challenges are. Because when I look at their design rooms and I say, do you have more than one or 2% of black designers in your design room? Lauren, they've never looked at it before. They've never looked at their design rooms and said, oh my gosh, we don't even have more than 2% of our designers that are, and I think once they see that and once that light bulb goes off, then we, we kind of move forward pretty quickly in um, creating a part. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. 
I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. The solution. Yeah, that's that's super, super interesting because you have seen this whole, you've, you've been here for the industry's transformation and the work you've done, I'm sure, is, is transforming it in another way now. Um, Sandrine, I'm curious from the strategy and marketing perspective, A, have you had over the years a lot of people kind of asking you for this type of advice for free? And B, you know, as, as a you know, independent business owner, how much of your work when you started was, did you start the business to help to, to be able to represent people of color because they maybe weren't getting the same representation within traditional PR and, and marketing agencies? Great question. Uh, no, I don't like giving advice like that for free to brands. I think at larger agencies, you're brought into certain conversations with certain brands because they're looking for that thing. And so at first, um, I was being invited to certain meetings, but um, I was also working across uh, mostly menswear brands, streetwear brands, sneaker brands. So for me, I thought it was very interesting, uh, to say the least, that like I was one of none of the Black women working on it or black men necessarily working on it from my vantage point. So I always tried to hire a, a, device, a diverse team uh, whenever I got to a point. So by the time um, I started my business, it wasn't a set plan to start my business. I was um, leaving the agency uh, world at the moment and um, a great uh, friend and resource and editor uh, recommended me for a brand and I was doing projects. And uh, luckily I already had all my LLC paperwork set up. So I started my business and, you know, I do give a lot of smaller brands the opportunity for my services, but like I also give larger brands the opportunity to partner with me and collaborate and hire black women or a black owned agency, because that was one thing that I noticed across the years there was a lack of uh, black leadership across like certain brands um, and across the board. So for me, it's it's a it's a double-edged sword. We have small brands, we work with large brands, um, but it's essential that um, I at least am doing something to pass the baton in a sense. Uh, so there are other black, you know, PR comms marketing people that I do mentor or I do give advice to, um, and it's important that they have next and that I can kind of, you know, when I'm ready to leave, uh, know that they're in good hands and that they are able to uh, take over. I'd love to talk about independent black designers right now. And, and I had a call with a, a brand run by two black women based in Washington DC at the beginning of the pandemic. And I had never met them. I don't, I forget who, how we connected, but we talked and they're a local brand. They do very well in DC. They told me this story about, they had a consultant come in who, who told them that they wanted to, to try to sell to one of the big department stores. And the, essentially the consultant who was white said, you're a, a independent black brand that that you have no connections you're not going to be able to to get a meeting with the salesperson at this department store 
you know, I hear that kind of story from white designers too, but it does seem like it, just talking to this brand and, and looking at, at the, the young designers who kind of have come up over the years, we are really lucky in the US to have a, a lot of, of amazing black designers who have made global names for themselves in the past few years. But, you know, what are, I'd, I'd love to hear from all of you, what are the challenges that young black designers are facing right now? And, and Brandis, maybe, maybe you can start since you work with so many of them and, and from funding to, you know, just exposure, how hard is it for, for them to break through given the, the rigid structure of our system? Mm -hmm. It's been incredibly difficult. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges has been funding, uh, which is, you know, Icon360. I'm hoping that that becomes a solution um, for designers. I think the other thing is opportunity. You know, when you think about um, designers who are coming out of high school into college, you know, they might be first generation college. They may be the first person or second person in their family who's ever gone to college before. And so to say that I'm going to a Parsons, that's not realistic for most black families. Um, and so I think, you know, when you're thinking about the, the pipeline, companies have to really kind of um, broaden their approach and how they recruit. A lot of times it's, it's re they recruit from four schools, right? And so I think that as they start to consider untraditional methods of recruiting, which is what I've been working with brands on is, you know, doing designer breakfasts, doing combines, doing competitions. We just did a designer retreat where a designer got the opportunity to um, do a potential collaboration with Nike. And those are coming about because you've got to look at this differently because they don't have the same, they don't have a, they might not, let me say that because there are some that do, but they may not have a degree from the best fashion schools. However, they could be just as talented. Um, so I think that has been, you know, financial financing um, opportunities has been a challenge. And the third thing is definitely exposure. You know, this moment right here where so many different magazines are kind of doing these roundups of black brands have actually been incredible helpful, you know, and, and we can look at it and say, hey, they're just doing this because, but a lot of brands have been able to um, make a resurgence after the pandemic because of these lists. So I think exposure is also incredibly important. Henrietta, what has it been like for you as a designer coming up in this business? I mean, that's a three hour conversation, but, um, but just specific to this. It's well, so I'm I'm on the corporate side, so I'm I'm sort of more on the, the people behind the designers. But one of the things that um, when Brandis was talking that I was reminded of is this quote that I heard on the news, um, and I'm I forget who to attribute it to, but he said um, the way that it works in like creative and corporate America, uh, or sort of in creative and corporate structures is that white people are hired on their potential and black people tend to be hired on their proven experience. And I think that's one of the barriers when we talk about designers, when we talk about creatives, and also when we talk about the corporate structures. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't know that my story is, is different or, or, or it's, it's always hard to, to say um, in terms of my trajectory, but I think that, um, there are many challenges um, that 
there are many challenges in the corporate structures, I think, that mirror the creative, um, the creative corridors. The challenge more so in the creative structures, though, is that it's largely unseen. And I think that's really where this kind of fallout has happened. Um, I think we're now really beginning to peel back the curtain to see how few of us there are in the marketing departments, in the buying teams, um, you know, in the PR corridors, and all of these different functions that actually make fashion work mirrored against the fact that there are so few of us public facing and um, in, in the designer um, in the designer realms as well. And I think that what that is largely attributed to is, is that kind of wave of, um, of black models. You know, we saw a few years ago that there was an issue around, you know, the public facing notion of fashion. So ad campaigns, models on um, catwalks. And so we've done some work to reconcile that. So I think that that almost lulled us into a false sense of security. And so now what we're seeing is that that doesn't look the same in all of these other corridors. Um, so I just, I think that's really relevant. Tandrine, as, as you, you know, you represent a variety of different brands and, you know, what has this, for the, for the black designers and black companies that you represent or people of color, what have these roundups that, that Brandis mentioned, have they been beneficial for the brands that, that you, you represent? And also, do you see the attitude or the, we talked about corporations, but thinking about media, do you see the, the desire for media to be more inclusive as a thing that a lot of white editors feel an urgency right now? Or do you see it being a long-term thing that you know, they are committed to this just being a new way of life and, and are, are willing to move forward in a more sustainable way and not just kind of be like, we have to cover black designers in this next issue because of what's happening in the greater culture. I think for any black um, owned business, um, it's been a great opportunity. Um, there have been brands that have been around for so long, but never received the same type of um, acceptance or accolades as they have recently with these roundups. So I think it's a double-edged sword. It's like, great, like you're finally acknowledging me, but we've been doing the work for years. Um, in terms of um, what to expect from media, when all of this happened transparently, I started having a lot of different conversations um, with various editors, editors who are my friends, but also editors who I have just like a working rapport with. Um, and I just wanted to gauge like what their vantage point was. Like, are we doing this just because, or are you making a conscious effort to move forward? Do you feel pressure? Um, and I think across the board, it's like a lot of people probably didn't even consider that they were just alienating them. I mean, we have to also acknowledge that a lot of advertising brands get more real estate. Um, with publications, so that's always going to be a thing. Um, but many, you know, we're very apologetic and open to the, these dialogues, and many of which I'm still having these conversations with, but from them um, engaging in it, like I'm not starting these conversations now, they are. And um, I think having the open dialogue and just being really transparent about where they fell short or where they can do better has been, um, more enlightening than just not sharing my client or just ignoring my email and saying to themselves or to like their colleagues, this isn't going to work. Have the conversation and let people know 
why it's not going to work or why it doesn't work for this specific story so that they can also do their due diligence to go back to the drawing board and see what trends or conversations are happening on the other side. I, th I think for, for PR marketing people, the best thing you can do is give them an explanation of why it, it doesn't work. It seems to make the, the conversation. I, I love talking. I love conversing with you via email, Sandrine. It's always really help, good and helpful. Um, one thing that as, as a white person, a white journalist working in this industry, I keep thinking about is even when we do our own coverage, um, I am hesitant to, if we're doing a story about how to move, we did a story on how to move the industry forward. And we talked to a lot of different black people for, for the story. And the, you know, there's a part of me that, you know, we have the three of you on this panel talking to you. There's a part of me that feels like, again, you have to do the work. Why do you have to do all the work? Why do you have to tell the rest of the industry what to do? And and with the Black Fashion Council and some of the other things that have come up, again, it's it's the Black people who are are being forced, not forced, but made to to put forward the change. the The industry as a whole, what what would you like to see from the non-Black people, the white people, of course, but also the other people of color? What kind of work can can the industry do to support other than you know changing their corporation corporate structures and changing their personal ways of doing things what kind of activist work do you want to see from other parts of the industry so that it, the burden isn't in, entirely on on the black fashion community I think that what's really important um, is that everyone else acknowledges where they have a privilege in the industry. Some people are being extremely vocal and you know, using resources and sharing resources on Instagram. And that doesn't only fall for white people in the industry. I'm seeing it with like other people of color, really acknowledging where they also have fallen short for their colleagues or friends um, and how they have also done things that were you know, consciously bias, right? But um, moving forward, they also have to do the work. Um, a lot of the work we're doing in the Black and Fashion Council and partnering with, you know, uh, uh, you know everyone um, is that the people on the other side are not all Black. And so we're giving you tools for success and you need to drive this forward. I don't sit in your corporate meetings. I am not, you know, on all email threads. But if four to five of you are really um, trying to make this change and you guys are all non-black people, then we need you to do the work because we can't do this alone. And um, it's essential for us to work with everyone because there are corners of you know various offices or conversations that we just simply don't have access to. So acknowledging your privilege, using your network and your voice, I think your voice especially, there's so many things that pop up um, in conversations, comments that people just really don't check at the door. And so those types of, you know, normal conversations are just ingrained in people and they get very comfortable with knowing that they have this veil of protection. Um, so definitely using their voice, their platform and, you know, their body is like be there be on the front line and and make the change that you say you want to see as well 
Great. I think the amazing thing about this moment is that there are so many different initiatives with clear goals that people can support. I think the fact that there are so many different things being started right now um, by Black people who are in fashion is incredible. So we've given options <laughs> to the industry to say, what do you want to support? You now have four or five great things that you can support. And so I think instead of sitting back and saying like, but what, which one do I just support? Just decide and pick one and support or two or whatever, but support what's already being done. I think, you know, we don't want to create these movements and create these organizations and we're out here doing it only with black people. This is an opportunity for our white colleagues to say, you know what, this organization that you've started, here's what I'm going to do to support that. The companies out there, they can say, you know what, guys, here are five organizations that we support as a company. Um, if you want to all like donate something from it from your paycheck, we'll match it. So I think that, you know, this has probably been the easiest time in history for companies to know exactly what to do and what to support because the groundwork has already been laid by all of the different organizations that have been created. Um, and I would probably, I think those are really great points. And I think to add to what Sandrine said, I think is so true about acknowledging your privilege. And I think that that level of introspection goes really deep into reconciling this because I think that, um, you know, again, to that point of, um, you know, what's the work culture like um, and building of these relationships as we become, the hope is a lot more diverse and fashion becomes a lot more racially equitable. What we don't want to do is start falling into a lot of the same patterns that fall under racism, right? So that sort of discrimination, the bigotry, the stereotyping, and just really um, acknowledging, A, what's my privilege and how can I use that to drive this movement forward? But also like, there's a, you know, everyone's listening and learning. I think there's a level of having to like unlearn certain behaviors and unlearn certain things that might not necessarily feel as pertinent to like the structural changes, right? But they still make an impact on um, how we move through the space, how, you know, just certain racial biases just inherently prevent people from upward mobility or, you know, so there, there are things like, um, you know, Oh, I don't, you know, so in image making, for instance, there was always that kind of trope of, oh, that doesn't feel expensive. It's like, you're not really talking about something, but you're kind of talking about something or, you know, when you say things like, oh, she's being too much or, you know, oh, this is really negative or, or, or difficult. And it's like, is that really the case? Or is that your resistance to be able to have a meaningful and honest dialogue that is uncomfortable but like also needs to be had so I think that when we talk about other barriers that are a bit more psychological there needs to be that level of introspection as to like okay how can we actually foster environments that allow for honest dialogue that make you know different people feel safe in these workspaces and not feel you know minimized or also not have to feel like grateful for being there on a really basic level I've been told many times you know things like you know you should be grateful you should be grateful you're a, you're a leader in this company or, you know, we've given you a platform. And so those things, while they're not necessarily these tangible elements of like systemic racism, I think that they still matter when we talk about uh, an influx of people of colour and black people coming into the workspace. So introspection, I keep saying that, introspection and also acknowledging privilege, I think is a large part of it to, to Sandrine's point. 
Well, thank you all for all the work that you're doing. You know, I think we didn't get to talk about this. Something I really, we could do another conversation about is, is, you know, the American fashion industry in some ways is breaking down right now. And, and there are so many connections to the lack of, of diversity and, and inclusion and just the way the businesses are structured that you could trace back to, to why, why they're failing right now. So it's, it's good to hear that there are, there are initiatives like that taking place. Brandis, Henrietta, Sandrine, thank you all so much for taking the time. I've learned a lot and I just super grateful and appreciative. Thanks to the BOF team for putting this together. Thanks to everyone who, who joined this conversation. We are really grateful to have you every day. And if you have any feedback, again, my email is firstname.lastname at businessoffashion.com. Thanks everybody and have a great day. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, learning materials from BOF Education. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.